All right. Hello, everyone. My name is Joel. I'm also one of the pastors on staff here. If you uh, walked in and you didn't grab one of these, uh, we're going to be taking communion together as a family. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've asked him to be your Lord and Savior, uh, we're going to take part in a special meal together. And if you did not grab one, raise your hand. Our ushers would uh, love to give you one right now. As they're doing that, I want to say a few comments that may be a little bit controversial but I'm going to do it anyways. Uh, chocolate is good. Belgian chocolate from a master chocolatier is better. Coffee is good. Single origin artisanal coffee in a pour over sitting outside a cafe in Italy is better. Android is good iPhone is better. (laughs) Watching a play at the Fulton Theater is good. Watching a Broadway show on Broadway is better. Traveling is good. Traveling and exploring hidden gems with a local guide is better. Watching the sunset is good. Watching the sunset from a hammock on a tropical beach with a refreshing drink is better. Doing chores is good. Doing chores while blasting music and dancing around the house is better. I mean, we can play this game all day, right? I mean, in your mind, you're already thinking of things that are better, even than what I said in my own intro. Uh, That's because inside of us, there's this innate desire for what is better. We all live with this desire to get the best thing. But as sinful people, our ideas of what is better is often out of whack, and we can end up with this skewed perspective of what is actually best for us in our lives. And we can easily give our lives to what actually isn't better for us. There are so many things that will divert our eyes and attention and our affections away from what is most important, and that's Jesus. And it gets even harder because when our lives of following Jesus get more like a grind, we're tempted to look out to the side and see, wow, their life seems to be a little bit better than mine. Am I missing something while being a Christian? Or maybe sometimes we experience suffering or our lives are filled with pain and difficulty and we start to wonder, can I really trust God? Or maybe when we are encountering pressure from other people to give up following Jesus, we start to consider, is it worth it to continue to follow Jesus? This is what lands us into a series that we are starting today in the book of Hebrews, because the author of Hebrews is dead set on fixing our gaze on Jesus Christ. Because when we see Jesus as far superior, far greater, far more wonderful than anything else in this world, then everything else will start to to dim as a result we'll see our love for him begin to grow and flourish. We'll see our faith in him be strengthened. We'll see our resolve to follow him bolstered. And every other comparison to Jesus will start to lose its power. 
It's like listening to an album from your favorite band. It's good, it's joyful, it resonates with your soul, but it pales in comparison to being a VIP at your favorite band's concert, which is a far more intense, far more joyful and uh, connecting experience than just listening to the music. It takes it to a whole different level, and that's what the book of Hebrews wants us to consider to explore that there's something even greater, something even more transcendent than any of the good things or the most difficult things we will encounter here on this earth. And in the crescendo of this exploration, we will arrive at the truth that there is something infinitely, eternally, supremely better than all comparisons. And it's this, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Would you join me with a word of prayer? God, we thank you that you have left us your word, an opportunity to get to know you, to see you, to enjoy you, and to live our lives for you. God, I pray that you would shine through the pages of your word today that we get to see you in a brand new perspective and be filled with wonder and awe over Jesus. May he be the central point of all that we do and talk about today, we ask in your name. Amen. Among all the books of the New Testament, uh, I find Hebrews to be one of the most incredible. It is fascinating to me uh, because it is filled with mystery and uniqueness. It's one of the most unique letters or books in the entire New Testament. And it's partly due to the fact that we don't know a whole lot about the background or the history of the book of Hebrews. It's a little bit enigmatic. uh, But what we see in the book of Hebrews, what it's telling us and, and wanting us to see is that this book is here for us for a reason, for a very important reason. We're going to get to that in a moment. We should probably start where we should always start with. How do we get this book and who wrote it? Where did it come from? When was it written? And uh, to whom was it written? And I have a great answer for all of those questions. It's this. I don't know. I don't know. And nobody else really knows either who wrote the book of Hebrews, when it was written, where it was written, or to whom it was written to. It's like somebody coming up to you and handing you a book and saying, hey, here's a book I want you to read. Uh... I don't know who wrote it, and it could have been written in America or Russia or France or I don't know. It could have been written to the Jews or maybe it was to the Gentiles and maybe written sometime around 1920 to 1970, but hey, it's a great book. Go ahead and read it. That's kind of what you get in the book of Hebrews, this, this mysterious book of why do we have this in the Bible in the first place? But the thing is, From the earliest days of Christianity, this book was never questioned. Its place in the Bible was never questioned. Everyone said this book belongs here in the inspired word of God. From the earliest compositions of the Bible, we find the book of Hebrews. Some of the earliest church fathers in history all say that this book should be included in the Bible, even though we don't know who wrote it where it was written, when it was written, or to whom it was written. It belongs in the Bible. In fact, the only people that 
that question whether or not the book should be included are some really crazy heretics in the first century, and I, I don't think you want to join them with those people. Uh, but I want to go through as much as we can and, and give you some ideas of what I think could be the author of Hebrews and some of these other uh, characteristics of it. So first, the author of Hebrews. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Uh, most likely, the author of this book uh, was someone who had a significant command of Scripture. And by a Scripture, I mean the Greek version of the Old Testament. He knew it through and through. But more than that, he had a really good understanding of the culture he was around, which was a Greek-minded, Hellenistic-type culture. Uh, he had this incredible grasp and handle on classical Greek rhetoric. He was an incredible orator, a speaker. He was an incredible person. Uh, the author, I'm going to actually refer to him throughout the message as the preacher for reasons I'll, I'll share in just a moment. But he gives us evidence that he was a well-educated Jewish Christian with this broad training in Hellenistic thought. That's kind of what we get. And there's some more evidence that we'll see throughout the letter. Like, for example, he refers to Timothy. Now, Timothy was mentioned other places in the Bible. And if that's the same Timothy, it puts whoever wrote the book of Hebrews in the same camp with Paul's journeys, his missionary journeys. And some people think that he was one of those preachers that kind of bounced around to different places throughout the world, preaching the gospel to different people. That's a lot of what people think with. That is the backdrop. A lot of the church fathers believed that the person who wrote the book of Hebrews was actually the Apostle Paul. In fact, the church fathers agreed that Paul wrote it, and that's one of the big reasons why it was included in the canon of Scripture. They thought that this was Paul. So if you look in the earliest compositions of the Bible, you'll see Hebrews placed right after the book of Romans within Paul's letters. But there's some complications with that. The more that you get to see Hebrews and read through it, you'll realize really quickly that there's some questions about whether or not Paul could have written this. For one, the Greek in this book is the best Greek in the entire New Testament. It is far better than any of Paul's letters. The way that he commands and uses the Old Testament, Paul never did. How fluid and wonderful his thought process was, was far different than Paul who jumped from place to place and back and forth throughout his letters. He had a consistent flow of thought. But most importantly, in this letter, he refers to himself as coming to know Jesus by the word of someone else. We know that Paul had a direct experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus. This author said he heard about Jesus from someone else. So it raises some questions over whether or not Paul actually wrote this letter. Other people have come to the conclusion, well, if it's not Paul, then maybe Paul spoke it and Luke wrote it for him, kind of like a scribe. Or maybe Barnabas wrote it. Or maybe one of our early church fathers, Clement of Rome, maybe he wrote it. Some other people have other thoughts, like maybe it was Priscilla and Aquila, maybe it was uh, uh, Philip or Peter or, or even Jude. But probably the most likely candidate for the author of Hebrews, it's still conjecture, is a man by the name of Apollos. We meet him in Acts, and he's this incredible guy who is a great preacher, it says. Someone who was well acquainted with the Old Testament, like this. He was from Alexandria, which is the hub of Hellenistic thought, which we see all throughout the book of Hebrews. But most importantly, Martin Luther thinks that was Apollos. So if Martin Luther thinks it was Apollos, then that's good enough 
for me. Not true. I don't care. It's, I don't know. I don't know who actually wrote the book of Hebrews. In fact, one of our earliest church fathers, his name was Origen. He says, when asked who wrote Hebrews, he says, I don't know. No one knows. But what we do know is that it was written and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it's profitable for us to learn from and to glean from. It is a phenomenal book, and it's important for us to read it. We don't know when the book of Hebrews was written. Uh, we have some ideas based on some context and some of the things that were going on. A lot of scholars believe that the book of Hebrews was written sometime between 60 AD and 100 AD. But there's no way to know. Uh, what we do know is that Clement of Rome, one of our first church fathers, he referred to the book of Hebrews in the last decade of the first century. So it leads us to, you know, to think that this book had to have been in existence by then. Plus, the thoughts in here are too advanced for early stages of Christianity. So it must be like second or third generation Christians. So we kind of place it in between 60 and 100, but if you want to narrow it any, a little bit more, we can put it between 60 and 70 AD because Jerusalem was sacked and destroyed in AD 70. And we know that the author of Hebrews would probably have mentioned that or referred to it. Which leads us to the recipients. Who is it that the author is writing to? In your Bibles, you might have a little thing at the top, right at the introduction of the book that says, to the Hebrews. That was actually added somewhere along the line. Somebody thought they should write that and put it in, but it's not in the original. It's just a best guess. We don't know who it was. We don't know if they're in Jerusalem. We don't know if they're in Colossae. We don't know if they're in Rome. We don't know where he was writing to. Our best guess is that it's written to those in Rome. Uh, Italy is mentioned later on in Hebrews. Uh, Clement of Rome, as I mentioned, he referred to it at the end of the first century, which means it was close uh, to that time period in Rome. Uh, so our best guess is that it's written to people in Rome. But I want to kind of divert a little bit from that and refer to three different groups of people. Uh, why I think the author wrote this letter uh, he was addressing three different types of people. One, he was addressing Hebrew Christians. These are people who grew up in the Jewish faith, believed in Jesus, left that Jewish faith to follow Jesus, and experienced a lot of persecution and maybe ostracism from their friends and family as a result of that. And because of this pressure against them, they were tempted to go back to the old things, to the traditions and the ceremonies of their past faith because they were facing so much pressure. So the author of Hebrews is saying, no, don't give up on, on this. You don't need the old temple, the old system, the old priests. You don't need the old ceremonies or the old covenant. There's something new. There's something better, something greater that's come. Build your confidence in here. Don't give up the faith. These are people that fully follow Jesus. Second group were Hebrew Christians who knew Jesus, believed all the facts about Jesus, believed that he was who he said he was, that he was God in the flesh. But they had not moved themselves back into the realm of faith. It was just knowledge for them. They knew all about Jesus, but they had not crossed the line into believing Jesus, having faith in him. Then there's a third group who maybe knew something of Jesus, but they were not convinced of him and they did not believe in him. And so the author of Hebrews is writing to them saying, you need to believe your eternal destiny is at stake. 
Believe in Jesus. I believe all three people could be present here in our church. People that have a genuine relationship with Jesus, that follow him and love him, but are tempted and and getting all this pressure to maybe walk away or not trust Jesus as they ought or should. There's those people here. There's also people here that know the truth about Jesus, believe the truth about Jesus, but have not accepted him as their Lord and Savior. There's also people here who they don't believe at all and are waiting to be convinced. And I believe Hebrews is going to address all of them. Let me get to the next one. And what I find is the most important, most incredible, and that's the style and the setting of Hebrews. From the very opening sentence, opening words, you're confronted with these profound theological concepts and symbols. But in spite of that, you are presented with the fact that this is not merely an essay or some philosophical treatise. No, this has the unmistakable sound of a sermon. It's almost as if the author lays all his notes on the pulpit and he pauses for a dramatic moment and he begins, polymeris kai, polytropos poli, in this rhythmic, beautiful, poetic style that's very reminiscent of Abraham Lincoln's first words in the Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago, you can hear this beautiful sounding language being carefully and poetically crafted by the speaker in this incredible display of cadence and alliteration, in this keen awareness of this musical flow of this beautifully spoken language is a style that carries all the way through the entire book. So you might read the book of Hebrews and think that it's like an essay or like a treatise where you're in the library reading, but you are not in the library reading because when you hear this spoken, you are sitting in a pew hearing an amazing sermon. And as we hear this magnificent masterpiece spoken, we quickly realize that the preacher is addressing a real and present and urgent need in his church. And one that seems astonishingly very similar to what we experience as followers of Jesus even today. His congregation is exhausted. They are tired. They are tired of serving the world, tired of worship, tired of Christian education, tired of being peculiar and whispered about in society, tired of the spiritual struggle, tired of trying to keep their prayer life going, tired even of Jesus. Their hands droop and their knees are weak. Attendance at church is down and they are losing confidence. The threat is not that they are going to be charging off in the wrong direction. They don't have enough energy to go anywhere. Worn down and worn out, they are considering dropping their end of the rope and drifting away. Tired and walking, tired of walking this walk, many of them are considering taking a walk and leaving the community and walking away from their faith. But what catches us off guard in this message is not just that the the preacher is addressing it, but he's not going to address them in ways we think. 
He is bold enough to think that the answer to all that they are struggling with and going through is Jesus and preaching. He is not going after some new methods. He's not trying to reorganize the the mission. He's not trying to get everyone together and have a snappy worship service. He is pointing to the truth about Jesus. And he creates this beautiful, colorful landscape of the gospel that is painted in brilliant colors against the backdrop of gray, lesser pleasures. And in this landscape, he's inviting his readers to join in with him and see that there's so much greater to be had in Jesus because he is truly better. In other words, he, he's sitting there and he's pulling his congregation close saying, come here, come here. Listen, whatever you're going through, struggling with, tempted by or persecuted for, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And that is how he begins. If you have a copy of God's word, Hebrews, hopefully you've already found yourself there, but if you haven't, turn to Hebrews chapter one, and this is how the preacher begins his sermon. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Oh, I love this passage. The, the preacher is saying, listen, I want to draw your attention. I know that you're going through some terrible times. You're getting pressure from every side. Let me point you back to Jesus. And he gives us nine characteristics of what Jesus is like and why he is so much better, so much greater than anything they will have ever encountered in their life and what they're going through now. The first thing he says is, Jesus is the final word. He's talking about Jesus. And many times, in many ways, God had spoken in the past, but now he has spoken through his son, the final word. Here, God is pictured as not being silent or distant force, not just kind of regulating the universe, but as a talker. One who's been speaking and arguing and wooing, commanding, telling stories, conversing, and generally spinning words across the lines between heaven and earth since the beginning of time. I love how author and theologian Thomas Long says it. He says, revelation is not human beings bringing ourselves to the place where we can see God hidden in every flower, star, and cloud but God bring us the awareness that the heavens are preaching a word we could not know on our own. And that flowers, stars, clouds, indeed the whole universe, as well as the entire fabric of human activity, history, are telling a story of God's glory beyond our imagining. Revelation is not primarily the discovery of some grand design stealthily concealed in the complex patterns of nature, 
awaiting a science sophisticated enough to map it. But a shout in the street crying news we could not have anticipated, news that God is at work in creation, providing and saving, reconciling and judging, nurturing and healing. God speaks. That's what he's trying to get across. Hey, God has been speaking from the beginning of time. Now, true, he has not spoken everything all at once. God did not reveal everything about himself from the very beginning. He has been doing it little bits by little bits in different ways in different times. Sometimes he uses a parable, sometimes a type, sometimes a person, sometimes an event, sometimes uh, an illustration, or sometimes a prophetic word. He's using all these different methods to get people to see him. But each truth is just a little nugget, and it goes on, and it continues on. And the new revelation helps to inform the past revelation and give us a bigger picture of God. And what the author, the preacher is saying is this. That's how he was speaking all the way throughout time. But then the final word comes. Jesus comes, and he is the final word. Puts him in the same line of the history of the prophets. He's in that same line, but he is far better. Yes, all the prophets may have been revealing truths about God, but they were forerunners of Jesus. Jesus is the finality of God's word. They were looking forward to the time of the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah. The Messiah is coming there, pointing to it. He is the fulfillment of the Messiah, and he is the one that's bringing in the kingdom. God has spoken with finality in Jesus Christ. That is captured by the words that are being used here in the passage. There's two different verbs being used to refer to the prophets and to Jesus. The first word is describing something that starts in the past and continues throughout time. That's what he used to refer to the prophets. They began speaking about God, and it continued for a time. But then when he gets to Jesus as the final word, he uses the term to describe an event that took place in history, and that's it. Ended, complete, finished, done. What God is saying is this. I revealed so much about myself over history, but the greatest revelation of myself is Jesus And here he is. He is uh, stunning and marvelous. And what he says is the finality of what God wants to say. The the comparison here is stunning and clear. And at this point, the writer of Hebrews is, is kind of stuck. What do I do? He, in good preaching fashion, he says, I know, I'll quote a hymn. And he starts to sing or quote this hymn that might have been known by the readers or the hearers. All these wonderful statements about who Jesus is. It's as if he's, he's saying, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Listen to the characteristics that he describes of Jesus. Next, he says, he is the son of God. The son of God. It comes not through the prophets, but through the son who is seated at God's right hand, who is superior to all other voices. 
It's not just a voice. He is the voice because he is the son. To paraphrase what Paul said in former times, we were looking through a glass darkly, but in Jesus we get to see God face to face. He is the son of God, not just any person, not just a prophet in line, but someone far unique, far more unique, far more superior, the son of God. Second, he is the heir of all things. Because he is the son, he is going to inherit all that God has made. He has control of, possession of, and the ability to distribute all of these things. But that's not the only reason that Jesus is the heir of all things. Jesus is the heir of all things because he created all things. And second, because he has defeated death and the grave. He has been given dominion over all principalities and powers. He is alone the one who has defeated all satanic powers and gained the victory over death. He alone is Christus victus. He is the only one who is the victor. This idea of Jesus being the heir of all things is so important because in our lives, we have to start to wonder, where does all of this life lead? Where are we all heading Is it he who dies with the most toys wins? Or is it he who dies with the most troops wins? Does history just flicker off with barely a whimper? The preacher assures us that when all is said and done, life does not belong to the demagogue, the oppressor, the tyrant, or the warrior. It belongs to Jesus Christ. The creation doesn't disintegrate into violence or chaos or futility. It endures as a holy inheritance to the Son. So then as children of God, as co-heirs with Christ, we don't end up in meaninglessness. We end up as a treasure of Jesus Christ. He goes on, he says, not only is he uh, the Son of God, but he is also the creator of the world. The creator of the world. (laughs) Really quick side note, I have to do it. I know that I, I shouldn't, but I have to do it. Okay, uh, let me show you how the Hellenistic thought comes in with, with this. So where the preacher was preaching to, if we get it right because of his thought process, if he used the word logos, which is word, which is what John used of Jesus back in his gospel, when he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God, it was through the word that all things were created. If he used that word, all the people in that community would have translated or interpreted it as a lesser God creating the world. That there was God and he used a lesser being, Lagos, to create the world. What the author of Hebrews does is he changes it around and uses a different word like Ionas, like Aegis. He created all of these things to show that Jesus is the creator of the world, not a sub-power to God. But think about it really quick with me, what that means as creator of the world. Can you, can you fathom this for a second? Consider the vastness of our galaxy. If you could put 1.2 million Earths in the sun, you would still have room for 4.3 million moons to fit in there. The sun is 93 million miles away from Earth, which is amazing to me. Pluto, if you still believe it's a planet, is 2.7 billion miles from Earth, and it's still within our own solar system. 
The North Star is 400 trillion miles away, but it's still nearby in relation to all of space. The star Betelgeuse is 880 quadrillion miles from us. That's 880 followed by 15 zeros, in case you're wondering. It has a diameter of 250 miles. That is greater than Earth's entire orbit. And that is still within our known universe. We don't even have a a concept of the millions of galaxies that we have yet to discover. And Jesus is the creator of all of them. Everything that we see, all the plants and the trees and the animals and the atoms, it's all created by God, by Jesus. All of time and energy and space and matter is all created by Jesus, and he does it without any effort at all. Are you starting to get a picture of Jesus yet? Are you starting to see his wonder and magnitude? Because the author says there's more. Listen to this. He is the radiant light. Or as the ESV says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. That word radiance is only used in the Bible right there in Hebrews. And it's referring to something that we would be aware of, radiation. We all are familiar with radiation, right? Whether that's from light from a star or from alpha, beta, or x-rays, or sorry, gamma rays, or x-rays, we know that there's a radiating source. We see these rays coming, we're like, there's got to be a source to all of this. We understand the source by looking at the radiation. And we can look at the radiation and, and get to know the source. It's all tied together. What the author of Hebrews is saying is, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact expression of him in human form. So when we analyze Jesus, we learn about the Father and the glory of God. There's no other being that radiates the glory of God like Jesus does. It's like John says, he who has seen me, talking about Jesus, recognize my true identity, accurately analyze me, has seen or understood or comprehended the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God. It gets better. Not only is he the radiance of the glory of God, but he is the image of God, the exact image imprint of his nature. When I was in Taiwan, I was able to go into a shop and I I found these little wooden things that came with a wax piece underneath it. What it was, was my name as a signature. And what would happen is you would heat up wax and you would dip it in and put whatever it was you're doing, you you would stamp it and that would be the seal. That would be the imprint of my name. My name on that letter or whatever it was, that was sealed as if it was mine. But it's even greater with Jesus. He's exact imprint. The ideas of like a die, uh, and then what it's cast is exactly like what the die was made it to do. Jesus is the exact imprint of God, the Father. So much so that when Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the exact imprint of God. God, as Colossians says, he is the image of the invisible God. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Small boy was looking at a picture of Jesus and he kept staring at it, kept staring at it, looking at it over and over and over again. And his dad was watching him. What are you doing? What are you looking at? What are you thinking? 
finally this young boy stopped and he looked up and he says, hmm, best picture of God I've ever seen. Best picture of God is Jesus, the exact imprint of who God is. I'm running out of time, and I really want to get to these, and it's really important. The next thing he gets to is the sustainer of the universe. Jesus is the sustainer of the universe. It's not that Jesus has the whole world on his back like Atlas holding the world. It's more that he is the force. He is that power that holds the entire eternal functioning of the universe together. Not only did Jesus create the world, but he is supplying it the very force to hold it all together. Without that force, everything would fall apart. Can you imagine just for a second what would happen if Jesus Christ stopped his sustaining power of the world? What if he let go of just a microcosm of it? What if he just let go of gravity? What would happen? We would float off and and die in unimaginable ways. It would be crazy. But think about our world, how precise it is, how incredibly necessary all of these things are. For example, the sun burns at 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If we were any closer to the sun, we would burn up. If we were any further from the sun, we would freeze to death. If the moon did not retain its exact distance from the earth, the waves would crash over our entire world and flood it completely two times a day. If the ocean floors were just a few feet deeper, the balance of carbon dioxide and oxygen would be thrown off so much that life could not be sustained on this planet. If the universe thinned out just a small amount, all the meteors that get burned up on the way in through our atmosphere would penetrate and destroy us. How does the universe stay in such perfect, fantastic, delicate balance? Jesus is holding it all together. Jesus is holding it all together. Wrap chair really quick. If Jesus is holding the whole world together, nothing is falling out. When we get to a, a passage like Philippians 1.6, it says, when, if God began a good work in you, he will complete it on the day of his return, which means this. No matter what happens in your life, if you have a relationship with God, no matter what comes in your life, what you experience, what you deal with, God will not let go of you. He will bring you to the end. So Jude can describe and exclaim with joy now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. See, when your life is given to Jesus Christ, he holds and he sustains it for the day when he takes you into God's presence. But a life or a universe not held by Christ is in chaos. Last description he gives, or second to last, is the high priest of perfection. The author has taken us from just the characteristics of Jesus in who he is to what he does. He becomes now the purger of our sins, the one who comes and takes us away from our sinfulness and brings us into a relationship with God. Hebrews 7.27, Jesus does not need daily like those high priests to offer sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. All the Old Testament priests had to sacrifice, 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 day after day after day. 
Jesus comes in this one sacrifice for all time. That is the magnificence of all of this that reaches its climax. Jesus has fully fulfilled the entire necessity of Jesus or of God's requirement for sin. He has paid for all of our sins on the cross and he's finished it. He is now sitting at the right hand of God, a place of honor and authority and control and rest and intercession for us. And it is what we celebrate each time when we come to this communion, when we realize that we are sinful rebels running from God. And all the Old Testament sacrifices, as many as you can accumulate, were not sufficient to forgive all of our sins. Only one sacrifice could do that once for all, the just for the unjust and bring us to God. And that was what Jesus did for us. So as people who are in awe and wonder of Jesus Christ, the great sacrifice for our sins. Would you join me as we partake together, recognizing that his body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us so that we could be in relationship with him. Let's eat the bread together. The juice recognizes Jesus' blood, which was poured out for us for the remission or the forgiveness of our sins. It is through him coming and sacrificing himself that removes our sin and restores us in a relationship to God. Let's drink together, remembering what he's done for us. It is because of this and because of the greatness of Jesus that he has been given a name far superior than even to the angels. Only Jesus is worthy to be worshipped. Only Jesus doesn't change or alter. Pastor Kyle is going to talk about that next week. Let me close with this. It is a universal truth that in our lives, we are constantly pursuing, longing for what is better. Whether it's what we do with our time, with our money, with our energy, with our persons, and we spend a lifetime pursuing it. There are many voices competing for our attention and our affections, wanting to take us away from what is best, and that's Jesus, to what is lesser. We can't start to wonder if when things get tough and difficult that maybe that is better. And our our thoughts and our perspectives get skewed, but we need to remember what the author of Hebrews says. There is nothing better than Jesus. There's nothing better than Jesus. Jesus, he was born contrary to nature. He lived in poverty, was raised in obscurity. His family did not have any wealth or influence, and he was not trained in any of the prestigious schools of the world. His family did not have anything that would be of notoriety. His relatives were very inconspicuous and uninfluential. And yet in infancy, he startled a king. In boyhood, he puzzled the learned scholars. In adulthood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked on the waves and he hushed the sea. He healed the multitudes without medicine and he didn't charge a penny for his services. 
He never wrote a book. And yet all of the libraries of the world could not contain the books written about Jesus. He never wrote a song. And yet the theme, he is the theme of all the songs, of more songs than all the other themes of songs written together. He never founded a college. And yet he boasts more students than all of the other colleges in the world combined. He was not a doctor, but he mended more broken hearts than doctors had healed broken bodies. Great men in history have come and gone, but Jesus lives on. Herod could not kill him. The religious leaders could not outwit him. Satan could not seduce him. The grave or the death could not destroy him. The grave could not hold him. Every creature in this world will exalt him and every knee will bow before him because Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and he is better. <laughs>